0: Outrage growing over racist incident caught on camera. Good morning, Michael. Well, after five months of investigating and a fierce partisan battle, senators. The will coronavirus stand outbreak has spread the to the high seas, with two Australians reporting time. here on the deadly helicopter crash that killed Kobe Bryant. His daughter. This is Santa. the furious aftermath of a Saturday morning traffic accident in Atlanta. <laughs> crackdown on the coronavirus and breaking details about the ninth confirmed case.
1: Amidst the hustle and bustle of today's 24/7 news cycle. Moments and events in time come and go with each passing segment. International wars, natural disasters, financial collapses, political revolutions, and so on. But if there was ever a date that should be remembered in this news-infested moment in time, it should be that of the 1st of June, 1980, where arguably all of this began. Out of a studio headquartered in Atlanta, Georgia, husband and wife anchor team David Walker and Lewis Hart presented the first news segment as part of the launch of the world's first 24-hour television news network, Cable News Network, better known today as CNN. Ready, camera
0: three, one center up. Good evening, I'm
1: David Walker. And I'm Lois Hart. Now here's the news.
0: President Carter has arrived in Fort Wayne, Indiana, for a brief visit with civil rights leader Vernon Jordan.
1: Jordan is CNN was the brainchild of Robert Edward Turner III, or Ted Turner, as he is more commonly known. He is an American media proprietor, producer, entrepreneur, and philanthropist, and was known for having a character every bit as bombastic as his resume. Think bison ranches, multiple girlfriends, cigar smoking, eccentric billionaire stereotype. So much was this the case that he earned nicknames such as Mouth of the South and Captain Outrageous. In fact, to give you some sense of the character of Ted Turner, he famously announced during the launch of CNN that quote, we won't be signing off until the world ends. We'll be on, we'll be covering it live, and that will be our last, last event. When the end of the world comes, we'll play Nearer My God to Thee before we signed off. Along with this promise was the myth spread and gossiped among industry and company insiders that Turner had created a video just for that occasion. Or at least it was a myth until in 2015, former CNN intern Michael Balaban stumbled across a video in the company database, tagged, hold for release till the end of the world confirmed, and then proceeded to leak it to the internet. This quote-unquote doomsday video, as promised, sees a marching band playing the hymn Near My God To Thee in front of Turner's Mansion. The footage is grainy, the setting is bizarre, and quite frankly I found it to be pretty grim and disturbing. It made all the more so when you remember that the hymn was the same one that allegedly played by the on-ship band as the Titanic sank back in 1912. Now, over the next few decades, as CNN and its 24-hour news cycle grew more and more into the mainstream consciousness, one can only wonder, with the amount of terrible news that goes around from flooding, war, famine, corruption, pollution, and what have you, that the network itself hasn't already played that video. But personally, from my perspective, when I look back at this historic point in time in 1980, from a 2020 dominated and saturated with news like the Trump impeachment trial, the coronavirus, Brexit actually happening, or the sudden death of NBA legend Kobe Bryant, I guess I can only sit back, throw my hands up, and exclaim with one simple question. Wait, actually, hold on, I think I should get up for this. All right, ready? Who the heck thought 24-hour news would be such a good thing? I got so much shit to worry about already. And now you're telling me we got forest fires and global viruses and rice... Hello, hello, hello. And welcome to another episode of the Economical Rice Podcast. I'm your host, Danny. Back when I was a finance undergraduate student, my professors always urged us to read the Wall Street Journal. They said that it was comprehensive and balanced, that it would give you a good picture of current events, and that you could see how these concepts you were learning played out in the real world. The most important thing they said, however, was that it would help you find a job. Now of course, it was a kind of simplistic approach to things, a promise that allured and gave false hope to the most naive and wide-eyed students such as myself. So, inevitably, I went ahead and signed up. $3 for 3 months, what a steal, right? And then I started reading, and reading, and reading. I came across things like mergers and acquisitions, industry overviews, sales figures, and a whole bunch of other nonsense. Whatever they put in the paper, my desperate, job-seeking younger self just lapped it up. And I continued to do this until the point that I realized that much of it doesn't really matter at all not to the people who are actually looking to hire you. I would go into interviews prepared to give my fresh take about the latest merger only for the topic to never come up. I would be prepared to discuss all things about the recent blockbuster IPO, only to find that no one wanted to talk about it. It was disappointing and demoralizing, nothing at all like I was promised. And so soon afterwards, I cancelled my Wall Street Journal subscription, and to this day, some part of me still wonders whether business school professors are shilling for big paper. I mean $3 for 3 months, what a bloody steal, am I right? Anyway, the reason why I bring all of this up is that I want to understand the role and function of the news a little deeper. As a general practice, I'm sure that most of us would agree that reading the news is a good thing. People should, as active and engaging members of society, try to learn more about current events and what is happening around them. But at the same time, given how rapidly technology has progressed and how differently we consume the news now as compared to before, you have to ask if sometimes whether too much news can be a bad thing. Not to mention all that stuff about fake news and misinformation, or your shady uncle who keeps sharing conspiracy theories in the family group chat. Basically, all of this is to ask the questions, can reading the news ever be a bad thing, and what, if anything, can you really do about it? But since I wasn't formally trained in journalism, nor was I involved in any way within the news industry, I wasn't really sure where to begin. And so, I called up a friend who might be able to help. Danny? Hey, Bill. Can I hear me? Yeah, yeah. There we go. This is Bill Poorman a journalist and American expat living here in Singapore. Bill hosts a weekly news run-up podcast called Foreign Influence alongside his partner in crime, Nikolai Grinevek. And one of the main reasons why he hosts such a show is that Bill is a self-described news junkie. As a journalist. Journalist is the fancy word for news junkie. So naturally, the first thing I wanted to find out was, what does it mean to be a news junkie? Oh, just a... Following
0: current events always and wanting to get down in the weeds and understand why current events are happening the way they are. If you're a true news junkie, you dig deeper every single day, so much so that uh, it ruins you as a person. Yeah, so I do think it is a it's a, a curiosity about public affairs. I mean people can have deep curiosities about all kinds of topics without ever touching on that. For example, I don't follow sports at all. But you'll meet people who know very little about public affairs and government and economics, but man, they could tell you everything about sports. So to refine my description a little bit, it would be people who were following what I classify as public affairs, government economics. Right, The big institutions that kind of define
1: the way the world works. And also, how much news does a news junkie actually consume? So I will take an hour just to survey
0: all of the various sources that I want to survey. And that's not even necessarily digging in and reading every article. That's kind of doing some preliminary skimming. And then I spend, of course, some time reading into the different things that I found. Uh, So that might take me another hour and then i'm a twitter junkie so you know when you add up all of those different sources i am easily and then i'm listening to podcasts right so easily i am following the news
1: three hours a day But more to the point of this episode, since Bill is also formally trained as a journalist and has been in the industry for a while, I wanted to know what function or role the news played back then, before things like Twitter and Facebook and WhatsApp came along.
0: I mean, you can envision how at, at its most basic, the role of news is just to tell people what's going on because things are happening around you. You can't be everywhere. So hopefully people can tell you what's going on, you know, a few blocks over, so that you can make better decisions in your life, right? And the more you can kind of grasp the bigger picture of what's going on, the better off you are, is the
1: theory, just at a, at a very practical level. Information helps in that regard. So at a general level, news functions to spread information. And theoretically, the more informed you are, the better choices you will make. If it's going to rain tomorrow, you will bring an umbrella to work. If scientists say drinking Coke is bad for you, you will avoid them, etc., etc. However, what makes things complicated is when you add human motivations and agendas into the mix. As a news outlet, you traffic primarily in trust and attention. Trust is what you get when your consumers benefit from your reporting, whereas attention is what enables you to stay in business by selling advertising. But once you get enough of each, inevitably, this little thing called bias comes in. But,
0: you know, uh, the role of journalism, uh, when you study it more critically, is really... Is it serving an ideological bias? Uh, And the number of biases built into the purest of journalism is a very long list. You know, if you have a local newspaper, it's going to be biased toward its location, right? You're not going to see a news outlet uh, go on and say, you know what? All of you people living in the city are stupid. Get out. (laughs) You're never going to see that sort of thing,
1: right? Ideally, we would want our news to be completely and wholly objective just plain reporting the facts. However, once you see the impossibility of this ideal, how no one can know absolutely everything that is happening around us with complete 100% accuracy, you start to see how naive it actually is.
0: It's just not going to happen, right? I mean, national outlets tend to defer to local power, they tend to defer to their local population. Maybe that's ideological, maybe that's simple empathy, like because those are the people they live with. Maybe it's the constraints of economics, right? Oftentimes these are for-profit operations, so you're not going to write things that are going to kill your subscriptions or your listeners.
1: And that's the other big component to the news, the economic side of it. Oftentimes, when we perceive news outlets as having this moral or civic obligation to report the facts, we tend to forget that the act of gathering and reporting information requires resources. And so, in the spirit of this podcast, and to build some context for the latter part of this episode, let's take a quick detour to discuss the economics of information. Picture yourself sometime during the early part of the 1900s. You are working as a common laborer, which is tiring and exhausting, and doesn't pay that well. Let's say that you wanted to find a better job, preferably something that doesn't involve sweating for 15 hours a day. What could you do? There's no smartphones, no internet, no LinkedIn, and no Wi-Fi. You could try asking around, chatting with your colleagues, other vendors, or with your employers, but this takes time and effort that you cannot afford, and most of their connections are likely tied to the same field anyway. Luckily, however, what you do have is the local newspaper. For just a small fee of two cents, you now have access to more information, at least more than you could have possibly sourced yourself. Information about local government, local business, local politics, and of course, those job listings that you were looking for. Those two cents helps to pay for the sourcing and publishing costs of this information. The reporters who spend all day researching and writing articles, the editors who proofread and improve these pieces, or the paperboys who brought the publication to your attention. But in truth, Those two cents probably weren't enough, not when you include other things like investment and operation costs for the printing machines, rental costs for your office, delivery and storage costs, and other related overhead. And so, in order to make up for the shortfall and to generate a profit, what the publication does is to sell advertising. This often overlooked facet of the news is also, in my opinion, incredibly elegant. Consumers benefit because now there are specialized sources for information at a relatively low cost. Advertisers benefit because now there is a way to market directly to specific audiences. And finally, publishers benefit because they've found a way to turn the attention and trust that they've earned from their readers into a profitable business model. The reporters and editors get to keep their jobs, advertisers get to promote their product, and you, our poor laborer in search of a better life, can look for something easier on the shoulders. Elegant, right? Well, not exactly. In reality, and mind you, this is a huge oversimplification, things are a whole lot more complicated. For instance, too many ads can spoil the whole consumer experience. The selling of ads necessitates employing whole departments of sales teams, graphic designers, and account managers. And if you're being frank, does anyone actually bother to read the papers from front to back? Not to say that each story published or ad posted wasn't relevant to at least one person, but that on the whole, you as an individual reader are probably getting a lot of excess unnecessary information, which is just another way of saying that newspapers, at least in traditional form, aren't actually very efficient at delivering information, which probably explains why it only cost two cents back then. A little goes a long, long way, you hear it screaming. Keep you look at me all day? All right, detour over. And now that we've got a better idea of how the news works, let's turn back to Bill to find out more about why it seems to be so messed up these days.
0: Now, all kinds of fake misinformation groups, pages, people uh, have cropped up. It seems to be much easier and much cheaper to do wide-scale misinformation campaigns
1: now. One of the biggest things we read about today is the so-called rise and spread of misinformation. And this is due in large part to how technology and the internet have shaped the information landscape over the past few decades, something otherwise known as the democratization of the news.
0: So the democratization of these tools, I think, is good. Uh, we are just in a serious growing pains set of years where we don't know really how to deal with the downsides and we don't know how to be
1: intelligent news consumers. In this new age, more people have access to information and various sources, but also more people are now able to voice out and become the news themselves. And when Bill talks about this growing pains period, he's referring to how we as users have to adapt check your sources, question credibility, maintain skepticism, that sort of thing. Unfortunately, however, this is a lot easier said than done, especially considering the case of those pesky family WhatsApp group chats.
0: You know, these are affinity networks. Trust in major institutions, including the major institutions of journalism, has gone down, 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 down. So, Where does our source of trust come from? Well, it still remains with our friends and family. We tend to trust these people. They care about us, we care about them. What they say, we tend to give a lot of weight to. So if you get a WhatsApp from a friend, you might think, well, God, they
1: they wouldn't send me junk, right? And although a lot of the blame should be pointed to the original authors of misinformation, this lack of due diligence is arguably as harmful as it helps to proliferate the problem.
0: But you don't know whether those people that you trust did their due diligence. So this is another example of how we're, we're having to learn and grow up and become better and more informed information consumers as these new tools make new possibilities cheap, easy, and ubiquitous part of our daily
1: lives. Which is made worse by psychological factors that hinder our critical thinking process. The
0: great debate is to right, well, if people just had more education. And I'm like, God, I don't know whether education is the answer. I, I think people, some people just really love the feeling of having their beliefs confirmed. Look, it's like biological. It's like having a chocolate. It just feels great, right? And it really just feels
1: crappy to be proven wrong. Ultimately though, in terms of the overwhelming negativity of the news, well, sorry to say, but it's just human
0: nature. That's another kind of bias, I guess, that you could say is built into the system. Yeah, you read a lot of bad news as a news consumer, but boy, if if the headline in a given publication or outlet was 99.9% of people make it to work on time today, everyone would be like, well, I don't care. (laughs) I knew that. Tell me the things that are out of line from the norm, right? And of course, the way that comes out is as bad news.
1: If negative news is what draws attention and attention is what sells, then naturally most, if not all, news outlets will lean towards negativity. I think we're hardwired
0: for gossip
1: and uh, salaciousness.
0: And if if I were to do some pop evolution, it was because that's how we stay alive. Because the person walking through the field of tall grass and hears something, And says, yeah, I mean, the chances of it being a tiger are pretty slim. I'm just going to keep walking. doesn't live very long. Whereas the person who is constantly going, okay, what could be coming next? What could be coming next? What could be coming next? Is going to outlive that person. So I think it's kind of hardwired into us to constantly be on the lookout for the alligator coming out of the water
1: to get us. And so to wrap things up, The reason why the news seems so bad these days is because 1. people are biologically drawn to negative news, 2. which leads to more news outlets publishing negative stuff, 3. the internet and new technology makes it easier to spread information, and 4. a bunch of us don't do much due diligence before spreading stuff around. Overall, as you can probably tell, these all lead to a pretty vicious cycle which can lead to individual nihilism at the least or mass hysteria and panic at the worst. And in today's climate, with news of the coronavirus spreading more intensely than the actual virus itself, we are certainly leaning towards the latter. So, with that being said, what, if anything, can we do about it? I'm tempted to just give you uh, a vague answer
0: and call it a bullshit meter. Bullshit! Something that develops over time where you're reading or consuming something and you're like, that's just, that's just bullshit. And you just stop reading or you shut it off. And I think that just comes from a long exposure to trying to understand different issues. I mean, I still run into issues that I, I don't understand. So it's just having put in the legwork, having put in the time reading and consuming news and information to where you have a pretty good understanding so that when someone is trying to push their position too far, uh, you're
1: like, no, 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 no. That,
0: that's not getting the job
1: done. Aside from taking the time to build your bullshit meter, Bill also advises to not be an idiot.
0: Let's be clear about it. There's kind of two kinds of idiots that drive me the craziest. Uh, one is the pure partisan idiot, where they've chosen their team and it doesn't matter what the facts are, they're sticking with their team. And then there are the people who just refuse to learn. And, and it becomes a contest of winning, right? I'm right, you're wrong, because I'm right, right? And I
1: can't be proven wrong. And in terms of coping with the overwhelming negativity of the news, the solution is surprisingly simple. The most basic way is just to turn it off and
0: shut it out, right? Like any bad mood, it fades after a little while. And you you go off and you do something that makes you feel better. <laughs> you know, if that's, binge watching a Netflix show, to hanging out with your family, to doing a sport, you know, to get off of social media for a little while, take a break.
1: But of course, sometimes you get so invested with what's happening around you, some major injustice, maybe climate change, maybe some huge hidden corporate scandal, that you can't just walk away and not think about it. And then just for me, kind of speaking from the perspective of a news junkie, what really
0: gets me down is the more you're a news junkie and the more deeply you understand things, you start to see the, the little and giant frauds everywhere. And you despair at being able to wring the little and great lies and fraud out of every system. Um, to put it a slightly different way, the very common phrase is the truth will set you free. I believe the reality of the world is no, it won't. <laughs> because Just when you present the truth, most people don't want to hear it. There's really only so much that any given person can do. Um, The truth that we carry in our heads and the truth that is out there in the world is so loosely held and
1: easily torn (laughs) if we let it. The way I see it, Once you hit that level of obsession, there are really only two immediate options for you. First, you dive deeper into the realm of fanaticism. Maybe you become an activist, or even worse, a conspiracy theorist. Or second, like Bill says, you become kind of a stoic. You take things into perspective and recognize the futility of your own individual actions. And I gotta admit, the second option doesn't always seem appealing. Once you feel like you've uncovered the big bad truth about the world, your natural instinct is to want to shout it out and make everyone see. But I think if you look at it from a different viewpoint, this option is more about self-preservation than anything else. Of course, there are major injustices happening in the world, frauds, wrongdoings, cover-ups, corruptions, etc, etc. However, shouting about it on Facebook or Twitter doesn't really help neither does taking extreme actions and riding on the streets or protesting in front of some government building. The stoic option, therefore, is kind of an act of humility, a sort of acceptance and understanding of some truth about the world and your place within it. Once you are in that position, you will be less likely to go down the path of nihilism, or the kind of extreme activity that would get you thrown in jail. And who knows, maybe from there you can even start to fight back against the negativity of the news and try to make the world just a little bit better. And with that brings the end to today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in, and special thanks to our guest Bill Poorman for his thoughts and insights into this bullshit-filled world of news today. Music for this episode was provided by Podington Bear, and if you want to check out the track listing, you can do so through the show notes at www.economicalrisepodcast.com, where you can also find the links to my sources. Once again, thank you for tuning in. This has been your host, Danny, for the Economical Rise Podcast. We're over here... Okay, hold on. So, before we end, just a quick fun fact here. When I was doing my research on Ted Turner for the opening... I found out that he was actually the creator of Captain Planet. Captain freaking Planet. Can you believe that? If you don't know what Captain Planet is, basically it was a cartoon in the 90s that featured this green-haired superhero who saved the world and advocated for animal conservation and recycling and what have you. It was incredibly cringy and hard to watch even when I was a kid. So I thought to fit in with the ending of the episode... Here is the theme song to Ted Turner's Captain Planet. Enjoy. Wind, water, hot, go planet! By your powers combined, I am Captain Planet! Captain Planet!